Good morning. This week we are discussing Parshas Vayeshev, and the title for today's class is Friends Over Family. And by the end of the class, I think we're hopefully going to see the combination of both friends and family, uh, but sometimes it might feel like it's friends over family, as we will discuss momentarily. This month, the month of Kislev, is sponsored by Albert, also known as Avraham, and Cindy Benalun in honor of Gena Nash, Golda Bas Avraham, Aleha HaShalom, on her first yard site with love. We wish that the Neshama has an Aliyah, and uh, certainly our learning should be a merit for that. <coughs> Mazel tov to my brother and his family, Rav Yehuda and Rebetzin Tehila Zweig, as well as the Machatanim to be, as of tonight. Rabbi Chaim and Rebetzin Rivka Goldstein on the marriage of their children, Yaakov Chaim and Tova. Mazel Tov on that, and we celebrate with them, wishing them Mazel Tov, and much nachas for the entire mishpacha, and especially the new couple, should know simcha and bracha, and build a bias them on the Yisrael. A Mazel Tov that happened this morning to friends of mine in Boca, Dr. Allison Rand and her husband, Idan, had a baby boy a few hours ago, so Mazel Tov to the entire Rand family. So with all these Mazel Tovs in mind, and with this chus of learning in mind for everyone as well, we always, of course, wish a refuah to all those that are in need, and, and probably do more on the refuah next week. Much of Torah Judaism revolves around the importance of the family unit and structure. In addition to the monumental significance of the mitzvah that we call kibudah ve'em, honoring our parents and having awe for our parents, are the many commandments for parents to teach Torah to their children, to help them get married and to earn a living. On top of all that, when it comes to family, there are the many facets of how a Jewish family celebrates the weekly Shabbos, the Yom Tovin. Indeed, much of these experience, experiences occur in our homes in multi-generational fashion, whereby great-grandparents, grandparents, and their children, cousins, aunts, uncles, etc., all come together in a most beautiful and impactful manner, right? That creates a big, significant impact on the entire family. So there's no doubt that all of these practices and commandments lead to a unique bonding of the nuclear family unit, plus its many branches. Nonetheless, there oftentimes are cracks and fissures and even breakages that occur in these same families. I suspect I'm not the only one who has heard the following quotation. I've heard it a little bit differently from one of my own brothers. Friends are God's way of apologizing for your family. That's a quote from Wayne Dyer who has many significant quotes. You're welcome to look that up. Um, but that is the quote. You know, my, my brother used to say, friends are God's way of making up for your relatives. This idea that friends are a better form of relationships than family is actually pretty thought provoking, right? The fact that this expression may ring true for many of us requires some deeper understanding. Why is it not an uncommon occurrence for non-relatives, meaning our friends, to treat a person better than some or all of that person's own family. Feels terrible to say it, but sometimes it seems to have 
a ring of truth. Should a person gravitate towards friends over family? Indeed, we have an example of this type of family friction and breakage in our parsha. And I am not talking about the one that everybody probably is thinking of right now, Yosef being sold by his brothers. That's true, but I'm not actually referring to that one. In the middle of Parshas Vayeshev, the Torah seemingly digresses from the story of the strife between the brothers and Yosef, meaning the conflict they have with each other, and the subsequent sale of Yosef by his brothers, and discusses the consequences of this tragic episode specifically on brother Yehuda. So the Torah has this whole story in terms of Yosef being sold eventually down to Egypt. And then the Torah begins chapter 38, sentence one. As we know, it was Yehuda's suggestion to sell Yosef and immediately following the sale of Yosef, this is the verse 38.1. And at that time, Yehuda went down from his brothers and turned until a certain Adulamite, that's the name of a place, Adulam, whose name was Chira. So what is that opening sentence? At that time, and at that time, Yehuda went down from his brothers by Yehred, is the word in the Torah, went down from his brothers and turned until a certain Adulamite, whose name was Chira. I'm giving you the literal translation. Probably some translations uh, might, you know, explain it a little differently, but that's certainly a credible translation. So Rashi tells us the following regarding this sentence and the fact that it's juxtaposed to the sale of Yosef. At that time, right? The Torah specifically says, and at that time, says Rashi. Why is this section placed here, interrupting the section dealing with the history of Yosef? because we're about to go back to Yosef being in Egypt and what happens with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, right? So Rashi's question, why is this story of Yehuda going down until the Sadulamite man, and then we're gonna learn about his sons and Tamar, et cetera. Why is that right here in the middle? Says Rashi, to teach us that Yehuda's brothers degraded him from his high position, they demoted him. When they saw their father's grief, they said to Yehuda, you told us to sell him. If you had told us to send him back to his father, we would also have obeyed you. Now, that's a subject that we went into very deeply last year, and we're not going to go into it right now, and also somewhat the year before. If they regretted the sale, why didn't they change it? That's a great question, but it's not for today. Right now, we're focusing on the fact that Yehuda went down because his brothers degraded him. So clearly, Rashi is telling us that the net effect of the brother's demotion of Yehuda causes him to go down to this man, this Adulamite named Chira. Obviously, the Torah is here describing Yehuda's reaction to that degradation, to that demotion from his high position by turning away from his family. He turned, he went down and he turned to the Adulamite man. In so doing, Yehuda then finds a man with whom he becomes a business partner. And Rashi actually says this explicitly on this very same sentence, that at the time Yehuda went down, he turned to a certain Adulamite whose name was Chira, says Rashi, he entered into a business relationship with Chira. In addition to this idea that Yehuda became a business partner, Lily, you have a question? Do you have a question, Lily? Please. Uh, Rabbi, I'm not following the, this thinking in the sense that um, 
when when did the brothers demote Yehuda? Like, okay. I'll reiterate. Good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'll explain. Uh, if you still, so do me a favor, take down the hand, and if you don't understand it, raise it again. Okay, just so I know that it became clear. Okay, if you can. All right. Oh, and if not, if not, you'll just interrupt. Um, so what happened is, is that the brothers had their conflict with Yosef. Then the brothers eventually threw him in the pit and Yehuda suggested that he be sold and they sold him. And he was sold down to Egypt. The Torah then ends that part of the narrative there. And then the Torah continues with this sentence that says, Yehuda went down from his brothers and turned to the Adulamite man. So Rashi says that after the sale of Yosef, the brothers demoted Yehuda from his high position over him. That means that what Rashi is saying is that Yehuda had a high position over his brothers. They looked at him as a leader. But when they saw the grief of their father, that Yaakov, their father, experienced after the sale of Yosef, they demoted Yehuda from his high position, basically said, you're no longer our leader. It's at that time that Yehuda goes down from his brothers and he enters into this business relationship with this Adulamite man whose name is Chiva. Good? Um, it, it was clear until this last sentence. It, it, it still seems to, to say that, um, like it almost sounds like two deals were made. It sounds like first he was sold, but then, the, but then again, is, is Yehuda Yosef now? Was, what? Right, Yosef was sold, right? Okay. Yosef is the one that's sold, and Yehuda, who loses position with his brothers, he turns away from his family, and he goes in a different direction, and he enters into a business relationship with a man named Chiva. So that's additionally, that's an additional yes. thing that happens to him. Okay. Correct. So we're focusing now on what happens to Yehuda. We're going to talk a little bit later more, a little bit more about Yosef, but right now we're focusing on Yehuda and this interlude in the Torah from the sale of Yosef to what's happening with Yehuda. It's exactly right, okay? So in addition to this idea that Yehuda became a business partner with Hira, is that in two later sentences, the Torah describes Hira as Yehuda's friend. Now that's very significant. He's not only a business partner, he's actually a friend. Hira becomes a friend of Yehuda, right? We know that not all business partners become friends, right? Or stay friends, right? In this case, Yehuda and Hira were friends. Okay, and that's in sentence 3812 and in sentence 3820. I don't need to you know, go through those sentences with you now. You'll see it in the transcript, God will. So we see that the sum total of what we're discussing is that Yehuda felt rejected and dejected, maybe depressed by his brother's demotion of him and subsequently found a business partner and friend named Chira. That's the setup, okay? We're good? Okay, so. Before we delve deeply into the topic of Yehuda and his friend Chira, let us look at the overall storyline that starts with Yehuda turning away from his family and concludes with the birth of Yehuda's own sons, Peretz and Zerach. And that takes a little bit of understanding to, understand, you know, to go through what happened there. So this is what we're calling the Yehuda and Tamar storyline summary. Okay, so now it's time to discuss the Yehuda and Tamar storyline. After Yehuda leaves his family and becomes a business partner with Hira, he marries the daughter of a man named Shua. We're not told the name of this woman, but 
she, her father's name was Shua, and that becomes Yehuda's wife. There's a question if she was a Canaanite or if the father was really just a, a merchant, which is another term that Canaanite sometimes is used to explain. Anyways, this marriage produces three boys, Er, Onan, and Shema. So again, I know there's you know what to learn here, so I'll try to repeat it. Yehuda marries a woman after finding this business partner. This woman that he marries, we don't know her name. Together, they produce three sons, Er, Onan, and Shema. Now, after that, Yehuda then finds a wife for his son, Er, his oldest son. So Yehuda's married, he has three sons, and now Yehuda gets a wife for his son, Er. This woman, we know her name, and she is the famous Tamar. Now, both uh, of Yehuda's oldest children die in incidents involving Tamar. Okay, so the first two sons of Yehuda are Er and Onan. They do evil deeds in the eyes of Hashem. Er dies because of his wickedness. Onan then marries Er's widow, Tamar, at Yehuda's suggestion, and Onan also dies because of his wickedness. Now, according to the rabbis, both Er and Onan do not want their semen, their sperm, to impregnate their wife. Now, it's the same woman. We're talking about Tamar, who was first married to Er, and then marries Onan. Er wants his wife's beauty to remain intact, and to not be marred by pregnancy that will develop if she becomes pregnant. Then Onan, who marries Er's widow after Er dies, does not want to impregnate his wife Tamar either, not because of beauty issues, but simply because he does not want to provide a legacy son. That means the son that would be born to Onan and Tamar would really take on the father's name heir, which is the first son, or at least take on his like uh, possessions or, and, his, and his kind of legacy. And Onan does not want to do that for brother heir. So Onan dies as well. Well, that leaves some number three, to which Yehuda, not so keen on Tamar marrying son number three, he says, Tamar, listen, wait until Shayla grows up. He has to mature before she becomes Tamar's wife. Now, in truth, Yehuda was concerned that perhaps marriage to Tamar was dangerous, given the fact that his two older sons died after marrying her. And Rashi says that explicitly in sentence 38:11. So what happens? Shayla, the third son, is supposedly growing up. Tamar, the woman who married the older two sons, is sitting as a widow waiting for Shayla. Many days then pass, according to the Torah, and it then happens that Yehuda's wife mother of Er, Onan, and Shela dies. It's a lot to keep track, right? Anyways, presumably by that point, Tamar realizes that Yehuda has no intention of letting her marry Shela, and she therefore devises a strategy. Because one thing that Tamar knows is that Tamar wants to not only be married into this family, but to have children with them, which is a study by itself that we're not going to get into today. Okay, so the bottom line is that Tamar is waiting for Shayla, but Tamar realizes in all likelihood that Yehuda does not want her to marry Shayla. Yehuda's wife has died. And it happens that Tamar hears that Yehuda will be traveling to a place called Timna with his friend Chira. Tamar calls him Chira, and calls him a friend for the first time in that sentence. And they're going together to tend to the sheep shearing business 
Uh, presumably that's both of theirs, although I'm not sure about that. So they're going, they're traveling together while Yehuda is sort of trying to get comfort over the loss of his own wife. And they're going to do business with the sheep shearing. Hamar disguises, disguises herself at a crossroads. She stations herself there and disguises herself as the quote unquote woman of the night in the hopes of tempting Yehuda to cohabit with her. Well, her plan works. And Yehuda gives Tamar a collateral until he could return with money currency in exchange for the cohabitation. After their coupling, Tamar, who was now pregnant, returns home and dons her widow garb. I'm not saying she knew she was pregnant, but the Torah says she became pregnant. Torah says it. So apparently she became pregnant from that and she returns home and goes back to, so to speak, the widow state. When Yehuda eventually seeks to pay his debt to the woman of the night and to retrieve his collateral, he sends his friend Hira, that's 30H20, it says his friend Hira, to find her and to conclude the terms of the deal. Hira searches for this woman, but even after making inquiries, cannot find her. Hira returns to Yehuda and tells Yehuda to abandon the search, lest the whole endeavor bring shame upon them, right? They're looking for a woman of the night, obviously for a reason. That doesn't sound so good. So Chira says to Yehuda, let's just abandon the search, according to Rashi. Well, look, we tried to keep the deal. We can't find her. We did the best that we could. Let her keep the collateral and we'll keep the money. So three months pass. And then Yehuda is informed that his daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. For some reason, which is going to be a little bit beyond the scope of today's discussion, Tamar's cohabitation while awaiting Shayla's maturation is deemed a capital crime, right? So because she's waiting for Shayla and she ends up pregnant with someone else, it's considered a capital crime. And that's a big discussion why. And at that point, Yehuda orders that she should be executed through burning. A burning, not always clear what burning means. In the Torah, the penalty of burning means pouring hot lead down one's throat through the burning hot lead. Yeah, it's horrible. I agree. As Tamar is being taken out for execution, she sends a messenger with a private message to Yehuda. Today we call it private messaging, right? PM. Right? She sends a private messenger with this private message to Yehuda, along with the items of Yehuda's collateral, telling Yehuda that the father of her unborn progeny is the owner of these items. Now I'm using the word progeny intentionally because I figured it's both single and plural, and maybe she knows, maybe she doesn't know, but she's going to give birth to twins, right? So anyway, she says, hey, the father of whatever's inside me is the owner of these collateral items, hint, hint, that you gave me. Yehuda recognizes his collateral items and admits and declares Tamar as being righteous, and that it is he, Yehuda, that is the father of the unborn progeny of Tamar, and therefore she receives a stay of execution. And seemingly the main reason why that's legally true is because as long as she was married into the family, meaning as long as she cohabited either with Shayla or with her father-in-law, it's considered to be a benefit to the sons that passed away. In other words, it's a form of a leverate marriage. That's much more the subject of another time. I know it's so many topics here and it's difficult to discuss everything. That's not the focus of today, but that's why Tamar does not get killed. And then Tamar gives birth to Peretz and Zerach, 
which of course is the seed of the Mashiach. That's the tribe of King David, etc., etc. Now, this entire episode is extremely unusual, right? In just about every facet. We know of nothing similar among the other 11 brothers of Yehuda and their children, right? We don't find uh, this kind of, shall we say, family soap opera drama and tragedy, right? We don't find anything like it. So here are three intriguing questions. Number one, is there some sort of cause and effect of Yehuda's actions, starting with Yosef and that whole story, that bring about this tragic unfolding with his two first sons? And even his third son is not exactly a simple character to understand either. Now it's important and I wanna make this point and I'm gonna elaborate on it a little bit later. Ramban in chapter 38, sentence seven, says explicitly that the deaths of Aaron Onan were not a punishment to Yehuda for the sale of Yosef. It was not a punishment, okay? And that needs to be further understood. We're gonna understand it a little bit more later. So number two, that was question number one. What's going on? How does all this stuff happen? Is there a cause and effect? Number two, this friendship of Yehuda and Chira is the only, the only example of a friendship in the Torah where two named characters are called friends. I find that astonishing. Why is this the example of friendship from presumably from which we should learn major lessons about friendship? Extremely ironic is that this example is that Yehuda asks his friend to pay his debt of shame on his behalf. Is this the paragon of friendship? Right? We all look to the Torah for examples of what is love, what is marriage, what is fatherhood, what is motherhood, right? Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's look to the Torah for friendship. You know what friendship is? Yehuda and Chira. What did Chira do? He went to pay, pay his debt of shame, couldn't find her, and said, "Hey, let's leave it alone." That seems that seems to fall short, uh, at the very least, from a major life lesson about friendship. Okay, number three, is this entire saga meant to teach us anything about the Yosef epic, or is it merely merely a literary aside and tangent? My friend Joseph Rackman told me that uh, the Bible critics, who he then says uh, he learned really know nothing, the Bible critics say that this was a later insertion in the Torah to try to deal with, you know, explaining something more about where Mashiach came from. Now, of course, that's not true. Uh, but my question is, it's smack dab in the middle of the Yosef story. Does it have anything to do with it or is it just a temporary digression and tangent? So as a starting point to our explanation, I would like to posit that Yehuda's condition after the sale of Yosef and his brother's demotion of him was that of a man experiencing a major identity crisis. That's my theory. Yehuda is now a man in major identity crisis. Simply put, Yehuda and the brothers saw Yehuda as their brotherhood leader. And that identity was summarily stripped from him upon the sale of Yosef when he and all the brothers realized the enormity of the devastation to their father, right? Let's think about it in the context. Yosef is seemingly supposed to be the leader. Yaakov gives him this, this multicolored garment, the Kasonis Pasi. The brothers are jealous, they hate Yosef, and they sell him. So clearly the brothers understand the concept of brotherhood leadership. And clearly 
when the final suggestion of Yehuda is to sell Yosef and the brothers follow that direction, they are treating Yehuda like the leader. That was Yehuda's identity. So that sentence that we made a very big deal about earlier, that Yehuda went down from his brothers and was demoted by them is a major blow to Yehuda, not just in shame or rejection, but it's an identity crisis issue. If he was the brotherhood leader, and really he is not, or he has failed, or he no longer will be, so who is Yehuda? So perhaps the Torah is here supplying us with an insight into the critical development of identity. A major component of a person's identity and self-understanding is forged by those that birth him and develop him, family. And we're going to learn a, a much further major idea here about birthdays and everything which is mentioned in this week's Parsha a little bit later. But for now, what we're saying is that Yehuda's identity crisis is directly because his family of origin has stripped him of the identity that they actually forged with him and, so to speak, designated him to be as their leader. So when Yehuda's own family, which is most of his brothers, does a sudden 180-degree turn on him and removes him from the position of brotherhood, Right? Yehuda suffers, I mean, the, uh, the, removes him from the position of the leader of the brotherhood. Yehuda suffers a self-definition crisis, and he turns away dejected and lost. That's the basis of our theory. So therefore, the opening sentence, which describes Yehuda and the turn of events in his life as one who descends until he ends up in a business partnership with Hira, is giving us a tremendous explanation. The beginning of Yehuda's finding himself and acquiring a new direction and identity post the trauma of what happened with his demotion and the sale of Yosef is that of a business partnership with Hira, a man that becomes his friend. So right off the bat, we can learn a tremendous lesson in the value of finding a friend. A friend is one who helps you regain a sense of identity, even when you experience a gut-wrenching identity loss at the hands of family, even at the hands of family of origin. And of course, this definitely happens in a divorce or other major losses that a person experiences in life. A friend is one who can help a person regain and reacquire a deep sense of identity. Now we're gonna develop this friendship concept further as we go down the storyline. Let me just quickly uh, check the questions that were just posted. Uh, Mrs. Atias, please ask me that question afterwards, if you don't mind, if you're able. And same thing with Mrs. Turetsky. Okay, we're gonna do them afterwards, okay? so. I suggest that we now have to ask the following question. How, having now reacquired a strong sense of self, Yehuda, uh, sense of self and self-identity, Yehuda decides to marry and build a family of his own because that's the order. He finds this man, Chira, he becomes his business partner, and now Yehuda himself gets married. So why does this family building plan 
end so tragically? That was one of our questions. I suggest that though Yehuda had a new sense of identity and direction, and he was therefore on the mend, he was not yet the whole person he needed to become. This is because in almost all cases, a person does need to maintain and hold on to the identity that was forged by their development of their family of origin. In other words, simply cutting oneself off from their family of origin is almost always a definite loss and does not allow oneself to truly be their whole authentic self. One of the things that my friends have done for me in my life and have expressed to me clearly is that real friends help families mend and stay together, not break them apart from each other. That's what real friends do. When you find the friend that's taking the person away from the family, that's typically a big problem, typically. Okay, even though there might have been tra trauma and you know incredibly difficult situations as we described with Yehuda. So I suggest that though Yehuda has this new sense of identity and direction, he was not yet the person he needed to be. He wasn't yet fully whole. He wasn't yet ready to reintegrate with his own family. And we know that because at this point in the story, he's still with this new family, still with this you know business partner, still only in this um, you know, world not re-entering the Yaakov and Sons world. So therefore, I'm contending that Yehuda's marriage with the daughter of Shua was not one of the closest intimacy and oneness because Yehuda himself had not yet reacquired his whole identity. And perhaps such a marriage leads to confused children that themselves lack an ability to seek full closeness and intimacy with their spouse. Therefore, Yehuda's firstborn son seeks physical attraction in his wife more than emotional intimacy and connectedness. He specifically does not want her to become pregnant. He wants the physical beauty, not the emotional connection. He wants the physical beauty, not the bonding, the deep, inextricable bonding that would happen in fathering a child together. He rejects that. He does not want that, which is horrible. This pathology twists even further as it moves down the line to his brother Onan, in that Onan refuses to help his own brother who had passed by just birthing a child to carry on the name of the dead brother. That's a devastating lack of closeness between the brothers, heir and Onan. So I'm just pointing out that there seems to be a chain of events surrounding the issue of can intimacy be developed when there is major identity loss in crisis and what happens in families when parents are suffering from that lack of intimacy that is built on major closeness of identities. So thus Yehuda and his family are suffering tremendously and tragically from Yehuda's own personal struggles. To be clear, I am not suggesting that Yehuda and his family are being punished. They are struggling from the natural challenges that emerge when parents are themselves suffering from crises of identity and lack of genuine relationship intimacy. Additionally, every person is responsible for their own choices and actions regardless of their parents and their parents' traumas and issues and things that, so to speak, happen to them because of their family. So therefore, both, both, Air and Onam, are they themselves wholly responsible 
for their sins and misdeeds. That's my suggestion. Now, the next step in Yehuda's self-development is unfortunately a step backwards. In Yehuda's mourning over his wife, right? That's what happened. Many days passed. Aaron Onan died. Yehuda's own wife dies. Now Yehuda's mourning over his wife. And in his seeking consolation, he literally and figuratively strays from the proper road, the proper path, and propositions Tamar, who was in disguise, as a woman of the night. And he subsequently cohabits with her. When it comes time for Yehuda to pay, pay the debt to get back his items of collateral, he sends payment with his friend Hira. Well, why? Why does Yehuda not take care of this responsibility himself? Why is he sending Hira? So my suggestion is because Hira does not want him to. Hira is his friend. And Hira says to Yehuda, Yehuda, you're not a person to go around cohabiting with women of the night. That's not who you become. Let me save you the shame of facing that woman, so to speak, in the daylight or in front of other people, whatever might arise from you seeking to find her and pay her, I'll do it for you. Why? Because a real friend reminds a person of who they really are when that person has forgotten. That's what a real friend does. And Yehuda takes him up on his offer. And it's not only that the friend reminds the person of who they are, they gently hold them accountable to that true identity. Yehuda is a man of unbelievable dignity, unbelievable strength. The rabbis tell us he's clearly a leader. If the brothers accepted him over Reuven and Shimon and Levi, he's obviously a force with whom to be reckoned. He's a tremendous person in that we know that with all of his challenges, this was his one dalliance. This was his one big sin. And even that, okay, you know, it's, uh, it's not the right thing to do, but it's not the most heinous of all crimes, although, of course, it's wrong. And so Hira wants Yehuda to take ownership of the fact that that activity is beneath the true dignity of Yehuda, and Yehuda accepts that, and he allows Hira to pay for him. And additionally, when it becomes difficult to find this woman, Hira says, listen, this really could be a degradation to you, to us, because this is, you know, this is beneath us. So the therefore of all this is that in that moment, when Yehuda accepts Hira's either reprimand or gentle reminder of who Yehuda really is, Yehuda becomes much more in touch with his real dignity, his real sense of self-identity. And <clears throat> it's only a person like that that is able to easily acknowledge and admit major failures and wrongdoing. The real reason that people do not admit failures is because they are insecure in their own identity. It's an ironic uh, twist of logic, but it's what happens. People cannot admit they're wrong if they don't actually have comfort in their own self-knowledge and self-identity, because if they're wrong, then they, the facade that they have of themselves is, is completely blown up and they don't know who they are. But a person who has a sense of self and knows that they have their positive qualities, knows that they're a person of significance and value, they can admit wrongdoing because it doesn't completely deplete them. It doesn't take away everything about who they are. 
And that's why Yehuda finally coming into his own identity is easily able to acknowledge Tamar is more righteous than me. Tamar is correct, I am wrong. I, the king, so to speak, the leader at the time, Yehuda, who was able to impose a penalty of execution on his own daughter-in-law, does a complete turnaround and admits that Tamar is right and that he is the father of Tamar's progeny. It's an amazing recovery. And it is for this reason that Yehuda does become king. And this is important to know. Many commentaries explain that though King David sinned with Bathsheba and would seem to be a lesser king, perhaps, even then, or I shouldn't say sin, I should say, though he did the act with Bathsheba, Thomas says it wasn't technically a sin, though he did that act with Bathsheba, which is definitely morally reprehensible, the rabbis explained that his saving grace is that he admitted immediately that he was wrong. King David follows in Yehuda's legacy, and that is what's necessary in a king and in a leader. The problem with power is that it corrupts, and it's only a king that has this quality of being able to be secure with their identity and admit their wrongdoing that can really be a king and really be the Mashiach. So Yehuda admits what he did with Tamar. And now we understand, most importantly, why the Torah teaches us friendship from Yehuda and Chira. Because when a person is able to help a, his friend to restore their sense of identity and beingness, that is a real friend. And sometimes it's critically necessary when family is either not available for that or a person himself has removed himself from his own family as Yehuda did in this case when he turned away from his own family. And therefore finding a friend like that was a major, major benefit to Yehuda. And we all owe Chira a tremendous debt of gratitude because Yehuda does father the Mashiach in this recovery. Now, what about our question? Is this simply a digression from the storyline or does somehow this all have directly to do with our understanding of the Yosef epic? So I'd like to digress for a moment from the question of digression. I know that's a little bit ironic and discuss the birthday concept that I mentioned before. This is the first time I ever realized this concept of birthday that's really explicit in Rashi. It's really an amazing concept, and it is changing my understanding greatly of what birthdays are and why the Torah actually teaches this to us in our Parsha, and specifically as we then tie together the storyline from the beginning of the Parsha to the end of the Parsha. Right, The beginning of the Parsha is Yosef, the coat, uh, the strife with the brothers is being sold, and then we have Yehuda and the story that we just went through, and then we have uh, Yosef in Egypt, ending up eventually in jail with the butler and the baker. And on the day of the release of the butler and the hanging of the baker is Paro's birthday, Yom Huledes Paro, and Paro makes a party for all of the servants. So Rashi tells us the fascinating concept about the word or the phrase Yom Huledes, but it's really about the word Huledes. The word Huledes, says Rashi, means cause to give birth. Okay, so who led this does not mean being born. It does not mean birthing. It means causing birth. It's the day of the causing of the birth. That's the literal translation. Says Rashi, what does that mean? It means that typically 
A mother needs help in birthing a child. That's called a midwife. Well, another name for a midwife is a miyaledes. A miyaledes is one who causes the woman to birth, right? The miyaledes, the midwife, causes the mother, the woman, the, that is the mother, to give birth. That's a miyaledes. So therefore, yom huledes means the day of the causing to give birth. Now I ask you, why? Why don't we just call it yom holada, which would be the day of the birthing? Or better yet, it would be yom hanolad, the day of being born. Nolad means to be born. Why are we talking about the day of the causing to give birth? But the answer, I think, is literally amazing. The answer is because the whole concept of birthing a child needs help. What's happening in the birthing of a child? A child is supposed to emerge into an identity of their own. In the maturation process, it's to become a whole person, similar to what we're talking about the identity crisis, the child has to find their identity and their independence in their maturity. Great. But you know what? It takes a village. The mother can't do it alone. Helping a human being emerge into their truest identity is helped by other people. The mother is the major force and cause and reason, everything. That's 100% true. But even the mother needs help in the birthing, so it's the causing to be born. So the birthday celebration, fascinatingly, is not celebrating that the child is getting older or just what's happening with this child. It's a celebration of the village that's developing this child into their identity. So the people at the birthday really should be the people that are focused and are interested in helping the emergence of the greatness of the human being that, is, that was born on this day, however many years ago it was. So it's actually not only a celebration of the child and how the child is developing, it's a celebration of all the people who bring about that development, which is why on Pyro's birthday, he makes the party for his servants. Because remember, Pyro is not a personal name. Pyro is the name of the king. And it is the servants that actually make the king. It's the servants that help the greatness of the king to emerge and for the king to develop who he is supposed to be and his governance and so on. That's the therefore. Therefore, Pyro makes the party for the people that, so to speak, are birthing him into his kingship. I even wonder if it was his actual birthday or the day of his coronation. I don't know. I leave that open. But the point is, that when it comes to a human being developing their identity, there are major contributing factors in that development. The mother, the midwife, the village that helps raise the child, and as we explained in the Yehuda story, the entire family. Well, the opening sentences of our parsha say that Yosef was shepherding with his brothers, and that's when everything unfolded from there. Why does the Torah say, shepherding with his brother. So I maintain, because he wasn't just trying to shepherd the sheep with his brothers, he was trying to shepherd the brothers. Yosef was interested in the development of his brothers. And guess what? The word ro'eh, which is shepherd, is the word re'ehu, which is friend. The idea that a shepherd develops the sheep and that a friend develops the person is the same idea. 
The fact that the brothers don't want to accept Yosef's guidance, or maybe that Yosef was not ready at the time is not what we're discussing today. Whatever the reason is that that doesn't work out well, the Torah doesn't digress from there to the story of Yehuda. The Torah tells us that what's really at issue is how does a person develop identity as a team, as a family. And when the family is not working out, a friend can be a critical component. But the ultimate is for the friend to reintegrate that person into their family identity as well, which as we know from the rest of the Yosef story, as we'll learn in next week's Parsha, Yehuda is right back in the middle of everything happening with searching for Yosef or getting food, negotiating with their father, negotiating with Yosef, who doesn't know is Yosef as the viceroy of Egypt. Yehuda is immediately a central cog in that entire storyline because Yehuda's development into his truest self requires that he comes back into the family and takes his rightful role in that family. And so therefore the story with Yehuda is not a digression. It's all about how do these 12 boys become who they need to become? What's Yehuda's self-development? What's Yosef's self-development? And the amazing fact that Yosef is able to do this in Egypt on his own is a major testament to the strength of Yosef. It's an incredible thing that he accomplishes. And the net effect result is that when Yehuda and Yosef meet, they are ready to reintegrate and to build this family as it needs to be with all 12 tribes eventually being named on the Choshen, on the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol. So some practical applications are, we have to remember that when a person is undergoing an identity crisis, it can have major effects on themselves and on a family that they build if they are not fully healed and recovered. In addition to that, we have to remember that there are different kinds of friends, right? There are the friends uh, that maybe you do carpool with, you know, Monday, Thursday, you know, Tuesday, whatever, however you break it up and every other Friday. Um, and that's great. And that's a kind of a friend, but that, that, that is not necessarily the kind of friend that is looking to develop you as a person or vice versa. The kind of friend that the Torah does choose to teach us as it's one example of friendship is the one that helps Yehuda be discover his truest identity, build Yehuda's confidence as a businessman and a business partner, remind him of his dignity, and then Yehuda is able to recognize his own wrongdoing, and that's when Yehuda is really able to reintegrate with his family. Those are a couple of practical applications. Maybe we'll get to some more in the transcript. So I know there's a few questions on the chat, so let me go through those, and then any others that uh, come up. So. Uh, Mrs. Atias's question, did the brothers take him down from his position for selling Yosef and not leaving him in the pit? So that's kind of a loaded question. The short answer is yes, but what really gave them the, the indication that was, he was wrong was the grief of the father. Now, the reason I say it's a loaded question is because was it the fact that they didn't leave him in the pit or was the fact that really Reuven is, you know, and his intention was correct and they should have brought, brought him back home to the father? That's not so clear. What the Ramban says is that no matter what, what Yehuda did was a major benefit and whatever he did wrong with the sale of Yosef, it at least prevented the brothers from being responsible for leaving him in the pit to die. So that was a major benefit for everyone. 
And your question, Mrs. Atias, is, well, what was their real intention? So that's not so clear. The short answer is, is that Yehuda should have convinced them to do something better. But like many people, um, uh, like many people, um, you know, we look to blame, you know, and not really look for our own wrongdoing. And so we're not even clear on what we're saying they should have done, but they should have done better. That's what I think the brothers are saying. So that's one question. Anything else, Ms. Atias, or we're good? Just something quickly. Sure. At the time that he did that, he was the leader. But where does this thing of the insecurity that you say about his identity play at that moment? He later, I guess, finds his identity. But at this moment, did what he do have to do with his lack of identity or his lack of confidence, I would say, in his leadership? That's a great question. I didn't think about it yet. That's a great question. Uh, it's not a small point. It's a huge point. Um, it would make sense, especially because he should be the contrast to Reuven, and that's certainly what happened to Reuven. Because right? Reuven definitely should have taken his role as the firstborn son and made the change, right? Um, and he did not. And that probably was a major opportunity for Reuven to undo the wrongdoing of the switching of the beds, and he failed, tragically. So it would seem that the therefore should be the corollary is that Yehuda, who was stepping into the Reuven role, probably was somewhat lost himself. Yes, it would seem that way, but I, I need to think about it more. It's a great, great point. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I think, Mrs. Tereski, that we kind of covered your question, but tell me if not. Tell me. So tell me. I can't, I, you're on mute. Um. Not really, because Yehuda was attempting to prevent a worse fate for Yosef, number one. So his, um, and, and I, it, it's hard to understand that the, the brothers did not anticipate the grief of Yaakov. What, what does yeah, that mean? I wasn't mean? talking about that part of the question. But oh. you, you, I'm agreeing with you that, that, um, Yehuda was trying to do a better thing, but it was Sorry, not- Sorry, Rabbi, the yes. question is not on the general chat. Could you read the question, please? Yeah, yeah, the question, Thank well, you. really, I'll just say the question. I think that in addition to, you know, what exactly is Yehuda's failure, which is hard to answer, uh, is the question, how did the brothers not think in advance that this is gonna be Yaakov's grief, right? And then you combine that with the question that I mentioned we talked about last year, which is, Okay, so if you know you're wrong, go get Yosef back, right? If now you know you're wrong, right? Your question is, why didn't they anticipate? But okay, even if they didn't, and now they see, so go do something about it, right? So that's a very hard question to answer. You really have to see last year's year. I think we, I think we did a good job. I think it was last year. If not, it was the year before. Either way, my answer to you, Mrs. Doresky, today about how they did not anticipate Yaakov's grief is probably they presumed definitely wrongly that Yaakov would swallow the loss of one brother if they saw the bonding of the 11 into a wholeness because they're banking on the fact that Yosef was a, an existential threat to the you know, strength and the unity of the Jewish people. And they probably, again, incorrectly said, Yaakov is gonna see how we're all really getting along well now and properly, and that's gonna be the Jewish people, incorrectly. 
but I would think that that might have been their, their wrong assumption. In spite of the fact that their jealousy grew from the special gifts that Yaakov was giving yeah. to Yosef. I, yeah, because I mean, they like, know that, yeah, they know that Yaakov, um, you know, ultimately what he's most concerned about is the development of the nation okay. in their mind. And it's actually true. You know, really the way the rabbis learned the entire, you know, again, there might be other ways to understand, but Rashi for sure and other rabbis as well, they learned the entire storyline story line where Yaakov was inconsolable and uh, what Yehuda says to Yaakov later and Yaakov finally seeing Yosef that, you know, uh, now I can see, now I see you alive is that Yaakov has a, a, um, an innate intuitive knowledge that if all the brothers don't make it, then the Jewish people are not going to be. Right, so it's really about the Jewish people, not only about the loss of Yosef. That's what it represents, especially on top of the fact that in Yaakov's mind, Yosef is the key, not only one of them. He's the key for everybody else to become uh, who, they, who they need to become. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think Lily had a question. Let me read it. So what is the takeaway of Yehuda's helpful friend not being Jewish? I think that's a great point. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, your friend does not need to Daphne. be Jewish. I think that's Daphne's oh, sorry, question. That's Daphne. I'm sorry, Lily, did you ask a different question or no? Did I miss that? Um, um, but, I, uh, but I do, please, please answer once you answer Daphne, then I will ask you something else. Okay. Yeah, okay, then I, I just saw, okay, I misread. Um, yeah, so Daphne's question, which is a great question also, is, you know, what about the fact that Hira is not um, a Hebrew, he's not, uh, he's not a Jew, it's even questionable, if he, it seems that he's from, from Canaan, a Canaanite, which in general is, uh, you know, a nation that uh, we're not so, so into, so to speak. But I think the answer is that a friend is a friend, you know, if, if you can find someone that you can trust, and they can really believe in who you are, not all unlike Eliezer and Avram, Eliezer was also a Canaanite. Um, and you find somebody who buys into you and, and their intentions are genuine and really good, the Torah is telling you that's what matters. That's what matters. You don't need to be looking for pedigree. You don't need to be looking for, you know, uh, social standing or anything else. Uh, you need to be looking for a, a really good person, really trustworthy, uh, devoted, you know, committed to the right things person. Lily, you wanted the answer to your question? Um, what, what I would like to know, this idea of leadership, you know, uh, in this particular family in the Torah, it, 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 it's a value and people want it. But in today's families, I don't know if anybody really even if there is an older brother or an older sister, I don't know, or maybe other people could chime in, this idea of leadership in a family, it seems kind of foreign to myself. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting point, a very good point, really excellent point. And um, what can I say? Uh, I think the answer to your question is that unfortunately, and this is definitely something that bothers me tremendously in general, families are not developing as family units together. 
in my mind, that's a terrible, terrible thing for the Jewish people. Uh, people tend to live all over the world and live very separate lives. And even when they talk to each other often, they're not really working on life or themselves together. And I think that's a problem. I, I don't think that's a good thing. I'm against that. I have the privilege of having had a different upbringing, as you all know. And for me, that's a major benefit in my life. And um, I strongly recommend it. I strongly recommend trying to live in proximity to one's parents and doing a lot to be involved in dealing with life and working on things in life together with family. I strongly recommend it. And if that's the case, then yeah, leadership becomes an issue because, and, and a good issue, because then you begin to act as a family. And when you act as a family, A, that's much more powerful, B, it's much better for the next generation, and uh, C, it's necessary, <laughs> meaning it's necessary for things to be decided. And by definition, whenever things need to be decided in a group, you need leadership. It can look all different ways, but there needs to be leadership. And where you probably see this example, Lily, uh, very often is when children, hopefully still it happens, even this doesn't happen nearly the way that it should, when children bond together to take care of their aging parents. That's where it sometimes comes up. I think that's terrible that that might be the only place where it comes up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, at least it's a response. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Dana, that's, Dana, that's totally true. It could be that he did uh, follow that Chira um, was follow a follower of the shame or Avraham ideology. It's very possible, just like Eliezer was. Um, yeah, the point is you need a person with the right values and the right mindset and hopefully theology and not a person with the right pedigree to be the friend. Okay, everyone, it's 10.30 sharp. Please zoom on over to my father. It's been a pleasure to be with all of you. Daphne, I hope you addressed your question. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you all. Yes, you addressed the first question. I just zoom. wanted to know, how do we view, how does history view Tamar? Who were her heirs? I know she had twins, but I mean, well, let's look at all the sacrifice that she made to keep this line going. Again, yeah, another woman yeah, steps no in question. completely. Right. You know. Yeah, Tamar is the ancestress of, of the Mashiach. There's no question right. about that. Major, major credit. So why, I, I don't know, um, you know, again, it's the woman who has to step in and, and completely humble. And, and it's, you know, we can do it and we're happy to do it. But let's have a little more um, acknowledgement of that, I guess. I, I just want you to know, Daphne, that on my bedstand is a, is a book about great Jewish women, and I actually started reading it this past hours. I'm not saying that my, my wife left it there. <laughs> I actually put it there. She might have put it on the bookshelf. Okay. Of course, I don't need to read the book, you know, with my mother and my wife, you know. I know you don't, but okay. I think maybe a lot of Jewish education might, anyway. Thank you. 